Hello, and welcome to Matters of Engagement, a podcast exploring the complex world of patient engagement and partnership. I'm Jennifer Johannesson. And I'm Emily Nicholas Angle. Well, here we are, the last episode of season three. I know. Can you believe this is our 28th episode so far? Yep. And even though it's the last episode of this season, there is plenty more to come. But more on that later. For now, we want to acknowledge the support of the Ontario Sports Support Unit, which has provided the funding to get this project off the ground and establish a solid foundation for critical dialogue about patient engagement and partnership. So we're handing this episode over to some members of their patient partner working group. Annette McKinnon, Bilkis Williams, and honorary member, Stuart Nichols. We invited them to share their thoughts on patient partnership today and where they think it's heading. Yeah, we hosted the conversation and asked a few questions, but mostly we stepped back so they could openly share their experiences, thoughts, and ideas for the future. Yeah, it's it's definitely a good way to end off the season. And Jen, we don't really debrief at the end of this one. So let's sign off here. We'll be back very soon with an update on what's next. Okay, so without further ado, here's our conversation. See you soon, Emily. Bye for now, Jen. I'm going to go in alphabetical order by first name. So I'm going to mute myself and I'm going to ask Annette uh, to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you came to patient partnership and research. Okay, thanks. Well, I'm Annette McKinnon from Toronto, and I would identify myself as a patient partner. Once I retired, I wanted to share what I'd learned through 30 years of rheumatoid arthritis. So I started a blog and I became active on social media and started tweeting papers about rheumatoid arthritis, research papers that I thought were interesting. And that led to participation in a design challenge at Medicine X, which was a patients included conference. And so for the challenge, patients were put into a group with a wide variety of professionals and the patients presented an issue that was a problem to them. Actually, we started out with 10 and narrowed it down to three and the group chose one. Um, And so the challenge was to pick the problem and create a prototype and present it by the end of one day. And I ended up presenting my group's results on the main stage at the conference. It took me an awful lot of thinking um, before I got past the, my group was brilliant to the, my team was brilliant and realized that in all of the challenges, the patient was part of the team. So that belief that it takes the whole team around the table to produce the best results is at the heart of my involvement. Thanks, Annette. And Bilkis? Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Bilkis, um, Bilkis Williams. My background is in medicine. I'm, I now practice as a public health practitioner. My, I bring to the table my experiences as a patient partner, both for myself as a patient undergoing um, gynecological procedures, um, also having a child in Canada as a new immigrant, and also being a parent slash caregiver for a person who, um, for a child. Uh, I 
represent the voice of multiple persons who look and live like me. Thank you. Thanks, Belkis. I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Stuart Nichols. I'm, I guess I'm here more in my professional capacity because I'm employed as the strategy for patient-oriented research program facilitator at the Ottawa Method Centre at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. And so my sort of pathway to here is sort of kind of along those lines in the sense that I started off studying basic science and studying genetics, sort of soon realised that A, I was more interested in the sort of implications of genetics and genomics, and also that I was pretty rubbish at lab science, and sort of got more and more interested in that genetic counselling was sort of where I was thinking I was going. And then I did a summer placement at a, a school working with and working with children, one of whom had Rett syndrome, and that became the focus of my, my undergrad thesis and started to do as part of that sort of surveys of public attitudes to genetics. And so that triggered my, my interest. And later on, you know, having to, worked and studied in sort of healthcare ethics, realized that it was the sort of, not the abstract ethical philosophical issues, but sort of how does that play out in practice? And that was kind of how, how I got into my first job, which was the title was called user engagement officer, which was basically patient engagement. Uh, that was back in 2003 in the UK at Manchester. Uh, and that was kind of my first job doing things like, you know, thinking about, if we're designing clinical genetic services, what are the outcomes that we should be thinking about? What are the outcomes that are important to patients who come through the clinical genetic service? So that's kind of how I got into that. And then gradually, you know, over the years, just carried on sort of in that research role of examining and exploring experiences in the healthcare system and, and those sorts of things. If, if we can just go back around the circle again, one thing that I didn't quite catch, I'm not sure if you each said it, Annette, how long, how long have you been a patient partner? For about eight years. And Bilkis? Four years now. And Stuart, you've obviously been in the field a very long time. How long have you been in the patient partnership role yourself outside perhaps of your employment? So I haven't really been out in that role outside of my employment. It's all been as part of my nearest job. So I say the first position was for three years, then I went away and studied. So most recent position I've been in will be two years in September. Okay, right. Are you a member of the PPWG? I basically sit in as an observer. I'm not actively engaged in a lot of the discussion. Okay, so an, an honorary member, maybe. Yeah. Both Bilkis and Annette, um, just wondering how you both came to the PPWG as well. That was something that I wanted to, to ask. I was really interested in the idea of SPORE from the very beginning from when they had the first workshop and I managed to get a copy of the proceedings. And so I felt as though I was searching for a way to get involved with the strategy for patient-oriented research. And I ended up phoning them and saying, "Um, I've heard that you have a patient working group and I'm interested in being a member. So after a year or two, they called me up. And the reason I'm still a member after uh, four years, almost five years, is that COVID intervened. So I'm holding a place for um, a new person who sh- what we're planning on doing some recruiting this year. And Belkis? So I served on uh, a panel called ICS, 
that's the Institute for Clinical and Evaluative Sciences. It operates out of the Sunnybrook uh, Institute for Health Sciences. And so after my term was finished there, they nominated me to join the SPORE unit. And that's how I became a member of the SPORE unit. So Bilkis, why don't we carry on, uh, since you're you're next on the list here with the rewards and challenges you've experienced along the way. We could start with challenges perhaps and then move to rewards. So um, Jennifer, sorry, I'll turn that around and I'll start with the rewards because I want people to remember uh, the benefits of doing this as opposed to all of the negative information that's going around in the world, especially now. Um, so I want people to know that you can change the world from wherever you're seated. So every time you hear about leadership and taking charge and how you can be a leader in your own right and being a patient partner is an example of one of those. This is one way in which you can change the world and be the change you want to see and you know, uh, accelerate that change by just doing, by just leaving, uh, contributing your voice representing the, the other people who don't have the same opportunities as you do. Um, so I'll start with um, one, one of the most exciting successes or rewards that I've garnered from just being a pleasure partner over the years. And this happened even before I joined, joined SPORE support um, unit was when I worked with the Institute for Clinical and Evaluative Sciences, ICS, was my actual phrases and words were used in public discourse. Um, when the government finally made decisions about um, gender and gender language and um, representation. So say for example, now when you do surveys, they would ask you, are you, they don't just ask, are you black, white or Caucasian? They would say, are you African, are you African-American? So are you African, Nigerian, Congolese, Ghanaian? Are you African, Egyptian? You know, so all the different strata that you feel, that you see now are things that I personally contributed and they're now public um, knowledge. They're now, you know, in public conversations. Also, um, I would say representation, just the increased representation in research, um, in, re in research amongst patient partners as well. You know, it used to be a certain class of people who would be patient partners, people who were in the know that there was such a thing as a patient partnership in research. But now the diversity has increased, the representation, I believe, has increased. There's, of course, there's always more work to be done and which is which segues nicely into the challenges, right? There's always more work to, to be done. I'd love to see more representation. I'd love to see more of what we speak about, more of our efforts, especially in the sports sport unit, you know, being in public discourse, actually translating to policies that people use in day-to-day -day life, that would be really important. And that's the challenge that we still seek to overcome. Also, I would say ex uh, just the experiences that people have here in Canada. And I think this, the differences are starker when you're an when you're an immigrant or a migrant, because not everyone who's come from an African country is immigrating, you know, just to live here forever. Some people are migrating for work, especially with, you know, the fluidity of work now. You can work from anywhere. And that's when we realize that, wow, okay, it's nothing's equal here. The equity, the equity has gone to garbage when you're when you leave somewhere else. Uh, because when you live in an homogeneous society, you realize that 
there are many things that you took for granted, like access to health, you know, how you're treated when you do access public services. Um, and that really highlights, you know, all of those inequities and lack of representation and the, the absolute um, disregard for diversity and diversity needs when you're rendering a service. Um, and I think that that's one of the advantages of having different population of people in the same society because it helps you to realize what you didn't know was a problem and what may eventually become a panacea, you know, what may eventually become like a Pandora's box. Uh, so, you know, what, what, what most would consider a problem can actually be the panacea for all of the problems that we have now. Can I go? back to the research experiences from the first question. The first research project I was in was a lucky accident. Somebody, a researcher asked for help and I didn't even realize that the team I was on was doing formal research. Um, it was great because the whole team had their, had their skills and they were all valued and, and everything was, was great. Um, the second one was a lot less clear. It was for a research application. And they gave me a one-page summary of the background before the meeting. Uh, when I went to the meeting, they moved the location while I was en route. And then they introduced me to the team, but they didn't introduce the team. So I didn't know who was in the room, but they all had stacks of paper six inches thick. And I tried to write the patient engagement portion of the grant application, but I didn't feel supported to do it. Um, plus I was very unqualified at that point. Um, after those experiences, a team of patients, in, including you, Emily, funded by the Ontario Spore Support Unit, created tools to help researchers know more about what patients' expectations were when they got involved in research and, and what patients needed to know when they got involved in research, including the timeline. And that's just recently been translated to French and it was in the ASU bulletin for March. So they're still there, although they're a little bit dated being six years old. So after that experience, um, seven years later, now I'm a part of the patient engagement in research scale research, the, the peers scale that evaluates patient engagement. And I'm a co-lead with another ASU patient partner, the Spore Support Unit, on an evidence alliance scoping review that is titled Approaches to Anti-Racism in Patient and Public Partnership in Research, where Samira Chandani and I had input to the work plan, including the keywords and the budget. And we're now reviewing abstracts and getting ready for data extraction. So we feel like full partners and we're really involved in all of the technical parts of the research as, as well as being uh, named as patient partners. I'm wondering if you see that shift in how patient partnership has gone for you as an individual from the beginning until now, like in terms of it being a perhaps, you know, better impact, more involvement. Do you see that as because the, the field is improving and, and the capacity is improving? Or do you see that as a 
factor of you being more skilled and um, more confident in the contributions? Like, where do you attribute some of that shift? I attribute most of the shift to the strategy for patient-oriented research that CIHR started. Um, I think that if it hadn't been that researchers had to include patients, that it would only be the rare individuals who were involved. I look back at the first time I ever heard of a patient being involved in research, and that was with the OMER Act, which was for outcome measures in rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, that was 10 years before I was involved in any type of research at all. I didn't get started thinking that I could be involved in research. I just stuck with that belief that the patients are part of the team and that you need the whole team. Um, it's, it's a tremendous improvement in the patient advisors network, which has a large percentage of people who are patients involved in research. Um, we've got 240 members across the country, so I'm not unique. Um, I think there are many people in the same position, and it's been, it's been great to see the field increase. Um, I just wish we would see more of an effect in a higher percentage of people believing in science, and perhaps this is a way to help. You mentioned that you weren't qualified. Um, at the time to be uh, contributing to the grant proposal. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit more to what you meant by qualified and if qualification um, and how much qualification comes from these tools that we talk about in terms of like um, structured preparation and teachings versus your experience over time. I think it takes a whole lot of work to get a, a qualification to feel qualified. The problem in that, in that early research application was that they didn't realize how much I didn't know. And I didn't have anybody to talk to about that. So I, when faced with writing the patient portion of the, of the grant application, um, I talked about how what they were doing in research would affect me and how important it could be to patients in general. Um, but when it comes to the, the actual structure of grant writing, I think that's a skill you have to develop and learn with experience. I think everybody comes to it in their own way. And some people have formal training and some informal. Before being involved in those research projects, I had been in online patient groups for many years since I first got a computer. And a lot of what we exchanged, the information we exchanged with one another was research papers. Um, we would find things that were relevant. We'd send out the links to one another and we'd highlight what we thought was important. And that experience of reading so much research helped me develop a more critical eye. So I began to look at pieces at research and think, why did they go back to 1950? Because that's not relevant, you know? Or why are they talking about this as an outcome when I know that most people in patient groups wouldn't care about it? Thank you. Um, okay, Stuart, uh, did you want to um, respond then to the, the original question? 
around the how far we've come and or not. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting to reflect on you know, my first position back in 2003 and sort of what we were doing then. And that was kind of all new involved in the UK. We still hadn't been going that long. Uh, and then, you know, where we are now, I have to say when, when it was back in the UK, there was a big, again, centralised push. So, that the, so the institution where I was working, which was called the Northwest Genetics Knowledge Park, that was one of five government funded through the, you know, the major funding mechanisms in the UK and the NHS. Five sort of centres of excellence, if you will, around genetics and genomics. And part of the piece that was written into that was about patient and public involvement. And so that was a, a stream that the, all of those different centres had. And I think that was the, certainly the first time I had sort of really experienced that as a sort of top-down mechanism. Although, you know, we worked with sort of umbrella organisations, so there was some at the time, it was called the Genetic Interest Group. I think it's now part of the Genetic Alliance, which is also the name of the US uh, umbrella organization. And, you know, they've done a lot of advocacy work. And so they were sort of quite adept at working with specific research teams or, or, or working with that. So in some ways, we were doing a lot of learning about engagement and involvement from, from them at the time. You know, we, we would meet... Uh, and learn from them but there was also a sort of sociologists who were doing more about at the time it was called the public understanding of science and this idea of this sort of deficit model of knowledge you know if the public only knew more about science then they would agree with us and agree that science is good so we did a lot there and it was a but it was still the work we did anyway I know there were other groups who were doing sort of what you might and again we were just discovering Einstein's ladder of participation all that sort of good stuff but you know a lot of the work we did was sort of consultation kind of traditional focus groups but then with other bits built on uh, really working to find novel ways to explore topics so we had a, an artist in residence we had other things but we didn't really have that or I didn't see the same funding kind of project-based funding that we have through sport. So I think that's a big difference I'm seeing. And I think that's one of the things I, you know, I've got as, you know, this, the next set of questions about what we're doing well and where to go is I think the, the infrastructure is a big piece of what we need. And if we think about patient engagement and research and we think about sustainability of that, is, you know, how do we move from, you know, mechanisms which are still fairly short-term funded support structures to something where it's either embedded or we find another ways to continue to support this if we feel that you know, patient-oriented research is, is something we, we value and want to invest in in terms of health research. So I think we've come a long way in terms of Canada's learning from things that have happened previously in other countries and looking to those. But I think the challenge is things like, you know, I, my position is funded through SPORE and it's, it's directed to support that. I, you know, I'm biased because that's my job, but I think it's a great initiative. But again, what happens after this period of funding? I don't know how many institutions, for example, have taken up a role like mine centrally within that institution to support this. So is it something that we hope gets translated and taken up by institutions and therefore SPORE is no longer needed, it becomes just part of health research and what we do? Or is it something where 
maybe the fact that SPORE is this specific entity and this idea of patient-oriented research, having this visibility of something maintains it in the consciousness. And if we didn't do that, does it, do we not have the same thing? So I don't know where we're going to go with that. And I don't know what the answer is, but I think that's, these are questions that I think we're going to have to start thinking about in terms of what's the future for patient-oriented research and how we manage them. To what extent are you aware of opportunities for patient partners via the SPORE support units or through some other mechanism? Who's contributing to that conversation specifically about the future of patient partnership and sustainability and the infrastructure? And do you personally feel like you have a voice in how that is going to be shaped in the next, say, five to 10 years in terms of where patient partnership is going? I'm confident that Stuart, oh, I'm sorry, Stuart, I can see your hand, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, so I'm gonna give the floor to Stuart because I believe that he's the one who can tell us much of what you would like to hear, you know, technically. Um, but also when you did say about, you know, having a voice, is there a sustainability plan? And this is where I always um, talk about self-advocacy and, you know, leading from where you are. I, for example, I've created like a track for myself where in my community or amongst persons of color that I know or persons with disabilities, I always you know, send out this opportunities and say, um, there's this opportunity for being a patient partner. These are the advantages. I will make sure to list the advantages of being a patient partner, you know, and in very many times people are concerned about remuneration and her honorarium, which is relevant, uh, but I always make them see the bigger picture. And so even during the course of my work, as a patient partner, as I serve as a patient partner, before the opportunities come for um, for a call for patient partners, I often share these wonderful experiences like that one time where my phrases were used in surveys or are now internalized into surveys around the country. I'm like, okay, you can lead from where you are. This is definitely, this is something that I did a few months back and it's now mainstream. Um, it would be politically incorrect to do anything aside from this. And I literally just did this from my bedroom room, you know, um, you could do this too. And so that piques people's interest and you can follow through with that. And so you're not just calling them off a blank slate. It's basically something you've been feeding them. So you can um, create that sustainability plan pipeline by yourself and store is, you know, the leader in sharing with us opportunities, but pushing us into corridors where our voices need to be heard even when they don't know that they need patient partners on that team. And I want to personally thank Stuart for all of the opportunities as well as Maureen and Annette who are our leaders in PPWG for sharing these opportunities with us and pushing us into those corridors where our voices um, matter. I can certainly talk more in more detail like local level of what we're doing locally. So, I mean, one of the things and we're, we're actually trying to I think this is something we need to do more of, is we're actually trying to publish a, a paper, we just, it's under review at the minute, where we're trying to sort of get into the, the literature, the different infrastructure that we've put in place locally to support this. And I think ICES published a paper recently about their infrastructure and how what they've built. Uh, and I think there's a CAMH also published something fairly recently about the work. So I, I think that's that's another good thing is that people are now talking about how they're building programs, support structures, things like that to support patient engagement and patient-oriented research. 
one of the things we've done locally is we've worked with the, the hospital. So the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute and the Ottawa Hospital, technically separate entities, but we work closely together. So the, the patient and family advisory committees, so the Ottawa Hospital has multiple committees that are uh, supported by a patient and family engagement program. And that's all on the, the hospital clinical side. But so there is, there's a, the patient family engagement lead on that side who manages the committees, but also has a sort of pool of advisors, if you will, people who've sort of indicated an interest of being involved in some capacity within the hospital, whether it's helping develop a, a new part of the website or a quality improvement initiative, all these different things within the hospital. So what we've done is we've worked with them when we sort of are thinking researchers have a question or, or want to sort of work with patient partners or, or, or get some feedback. We've, we've worked with the, the hospital side to sort of facilitate that and we work together collaboratively to uh, bring the two, the two groups together. And that is, you know, that patient family advisory committee or the program, I should say, is supported and paid for managed through the hospital center so that's you know that's a sustained program but it is still one person who manages a lot of that with some volunteer support so that's i guess that's one way where we're, we're starting to see well what can we do on the research side can we leverage some of some of the the support there can we build in a, a role like mine within the method center for example at the other hospital we're also trying to sort of develop so things like IT infrastructure, you know, we have database, we have sort of a system in place that tries to monitor and regularly do a, a sort of reminder to myself or to my, my equivalent in the other hospital, you know, to reach out to teams to see how they're doing it, they'll touch base or set an end date where there's an automated evaluation survey that goes out to try and capture and see whether the things are going well, um, if there are things that could have been improved. We've implemented things like uh, data monitoring approaches. So our research ethics board now as part of their application process actually has questions about whether patients are engaged in the research and if so, in what capacity. So we know where that patient engagement is happening, which departments we can sort of track whether there's more studies coming through that have engaged patients as partners. So again, that helps us sort of try and either anticipate or monitor the level. So if we do need extra support or infrastructure put in place, then that's, we can look at those, those indicators. And at the same time, things like, we're looking at things like uh, the my, you know, my chart, can we build something there where there could be a place for people to indicate if they're interested in research and, and partnering in research. So there's a few things where we're trying to look at what we can do with the existing some of it hospital infrastructure that's going to be permanent is in place and we can sort of leverage from a research side, but use also collect data and try and make use of the data to try and inform our decision-making. Now, some of it's still going to be you know, dependent on research and maybe we have, we have those conversations, but we are having those conversations. And I know that, uh, you know, there's great institutional interest in this. So maybe that's something, but from the bigger picture province-wide or, or Nationwide, I'm not quite sure what's happening, and you know, a lot of the infrastructure is still, you know, special CHR funding uh, and so forth. So um, that's kind of 
my take on where things are now. Thank you, Stuart. Why don't we shift over to Annette um, and you can uh, see where you land in some of these uh, questions about the field of patient partnership. I've always looked for opportunities and um, I've always wanted to share any opportunities I find. So through the patient partners private website, um, if I have requests from researchers, if I know of opportunities where they're looking for more people, I'll share them. I'll share the knowledge that I find and I'll share the conferences that I'm being invited to in, in the hopes that other people might find them interesting. Um, one thing that I've seen that shows progress is the Empower Awards special issue that's of Longwoods that's gonna come out in April, where they're highlighting 15 patient-oriented um, patient research projects and where all of these projects got additional funding for knowledge transfer through the SPORE support unit. Um, that should be interesting. I'll have nothing else to say to that, except that, you know, um, there's still more to be done, as everyone has rightly said. Uh, more opportunities need to be more representative of the actual population. Uh, it shouldn't just be a few um, people in, in a certain pay range, in a certain age group that should be doing this work, because we want to create a sustainable um, system, right? And we need to walk the talk. That's great. That's that's helpful. And actually, my question sort of stems from something that Bilkis, you said at the beginning, which was you talked about in terms of sustainability, how much you share as an engaged patient partner and um, and as an, someone who's knowledgeable because of your work with the PPWG. And I wondered how much you felt that that sort of um, sustainability plan, the sort of the sort of organic ways that people share, and, and Annette, you spoke to this as well, um, can be supported by infrastructure or can be embedded into infrastructure. And if you also see a, a role for sort of non-institutional practices of advocacy, of giving feedback, of pushing for system change, being a part of the future of engagement. So um, since social media is the great thing, right? I haven't seen any challenges from the government that says, you know, the first person to join the uh, patient partner unit for this research is going to get, you know, I don't know, some some sort of incentive, nothing. Um, there's so much that you could do with public communication and the, the ability to reach people at, with no cost at all, just as with this podcast and the amount of um, viewers and followers and listeners that you have look at that power can be harnessed for something greater so why aren't high school kids being recruited to patient partner working groups you know these are so sometimes these are people that feel the brunt of being being a patient or being a patient partner the most they have mothers who are clinical ill they have sisters or siblings who uh, live with a chronic condition um, they themselves live with a disability um, what, what else uh, they they need to access many of these public services multiple times in a year either because they're going to high school or they need some sort of report for something or they're involved in sports but where where's the voice i haven't 
I have yet to meet a high school person, you know, as a patient partner work, working group. Um, how about all the other people who identify as none other? Um, how many non-gendered persons have you met? in the course of being a patient partner. Um, radio Jingles, um, there's a popular radio show that I listen to in the morning when I'm on my way to work. And, you know, there's all, all, often these giveaways. If you call in now, you're gonna get, you know, $5,000 or a free show or a free ticket or whatever. How about, this is something that, you know, the government is working on, or this is a research by some such and such persons, and they're looking to recruit patient partners for this work. And this is what you'll be doing as a patient partner. If you do sign up on our show right this minute, we'll give you a free ticket to this person's show. You know, those are things that can be done. It's not that hard. It's not rocket science. Even rocket science is now simple, um, you know, so we should get to it it's not as hard as we think it is. We just need to put our hearts into serving people and really leaving the experiences of other people. Given it's not that hard, just curious what, why you think maybe the government doesn't do or that that hasn't happened. In my belief, it is because, uh, you know, doing this kind of thing, it's not, it doesn't generate revenue. Right. Um, sometimes it even costs the government to recruit patient partners, you know, because you have to give them some sort of incentive or the time. And many times I believe that there's disregard for patient partners' voices because they're not seen as professionals. But we fail to see that patients are also persons living their day to day lives. They're engineers amongst us, you know, they're doctors amongst us, PhD. Annette can speak more to this because she did some recruiting of recent and there were like so many PhD candidates, we were astounded. So in spite of the fact that people are patients, right, that doesn't mean that their mental capacities are regressing. <laughs> Just because you live with a chronic illness does not mean that you cannot achieve in other parts of your life. Um, you're a mother, you are a, a parent, you know, you're an adult, you're a child's adult because there are different ways in which people are families these days. How, how else can I think? You know, people are living their lives in spite of being patients. Everyone has something to offer. Everyone is a professional in their own right, and they have experiences far beyond being a patient that they can bring to the table to, you know, improve the services that we render and the research that we do and the, impen the impending impact that we can give with all of the magnanimous work that we can do as researchers, as scientists, as governments. Vilkis, that was such a good impassioned uh, call to action. I think um, given the time though, we should finish with Annette and Stuart if you have additional or follow-on thoughts uh, to conclude with, or you want to circle back to anything. Just going back to some of the, the things about sustainability, I think one of the, the good things is that there are people, and again, I'm paid in, in my jobs, so I, I kind of think that's, that's it's good as well as sort of hopefully feeling that I'm making the contribution, but I, I Having spoken to other individuals who are doing similar roles as myself, I think some people, you know, it's either not their entire job. Patient engagement is not their entire job. It's 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 part of their job. So, you know, they have competing demands. Uh, I don't know how many people do it as a full time job. So, I think that's something in terms of just 
what's while there are support structures to what extent are they committed entirely to patient engagement or is patient engagement part of a bigger a bigger picture i think there's there's some uh, if we're thinking about sustainability and sort of the infrastructure and how we move forward i think that's going to be part of that conversation and then the other thing that you know we've talked about patient engagement and patient oriented research what's what's the roles for patient engagement or community involvement in other aspects of the research endeavor so you know research ethics and oversight what's what's the role there you know with i'm doing some work with colleagues in the us where we're actually surveying uh, institutional review boards so research ethics boards in the us about how do they identify and recruit their unaffiliated or non-scientist members of the boards who are they and you know certainly a good proportion are it's it's an ex a retired nurse or it's it's someone who also works in the department they serve as our non-scientist because they're, they're a member of the admin staff for the research board so also like when we think about the funding so when we review chr as part of the last few project scheme competitions has had um, a priority area for patient-oriented research. What's the training given to people who are reviewing grants and making decisions around, is this a good fit with patient-oriented research? To what extent, you know, Annette mentioned the Empower Awards, patients, partners were involved in reviewing those grants, but I don't know, again, how broadly that's, that happens in terms of the sort of bigger schemes. Uh, the uh, funding mechanisms for research. So I think those are also things we, as we move the, the discussion forward, thinking longer term, thinking about those other areas of research, the research enterprise and how patient partnership can work there. I think that those are going to be other big questions and discussions. And then finally, sort of the interaction between the different SPORE entities now. You know, we have a national training entity with the SPORE support units, we have the SPORE networks. What's the bigger picture and how are those going to work in the future together as, uh, as funding sort of slows down or we think about renewal? So that's that's kind of my, my final thoughts on that. I think they might be counting on the fact that we've got, we've had SPORE in place for seven years now and that it's likely to be in place for at least 10 years. We will have changed, we will have, we will have helped to train a whole generation of researchers. And it will be the norm for them to include patients, to look for the different ideas, the different insights that patients can add to make the research richer and more useful and more likely to have an effect on outcomes. I think the hardest part uh, for patients in getting patients and caregivers in getting involved in research is finding that first step, that first rung on the ladder. So I'm hoping that some of the, the work of the national training entity and, um, and other groups will, will help get more people into it. I've had conversations myself with friends and we see ourselves as at this point, the older group, um, somebody's gonna have to replace us. And we're hoping it's gonna be really vital, um, interested, energetic people who are, who are younger and they can carry the torch. I think one of the problems we might have is that there's no actual repository for patient knowledge, um, unless we count hopefully the patient advisors network, but 
but there are so many people doing so many different things at every level of research and healthcare um, in, the, in the provincial and the federal systems. Um, you couldn't, I think it would be interesting to find out how many areas patients are involved in. I think the closest we've got to that is Julia Abelson's 500 person survey that she did on the on people in people who are engaged in in research and in advocacy and healthcare and in working for change and we have yet to see the results of that survey but the interest was huge i mean where do you find 500 patient partners easily um, who are going to answer a questionnaire uh, where the average amount of time that people took was 40 to 50 minutes. I just wanted to say, because someone being a patient does not make one incapable of contributing to their own care. You know, patient partner voices are important and we should listen to it. This episode was written and produced by Jennifer Johannesson and Emily Nicholas Angle, with additional music and production support from Angus Turney. Generous financial contribution was provided by the Ontario Spore Support Unit, or OSU, which is jointly funded by the Government of Ontario and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, or CIHR. The views and opinions expressed in this episode belong solely to the hosts or their guests and are not to be considered endorsed by OSU, the Government of Ontario, or CIHR.